Guys, I want to welcome you to a new theme that we're going to be doing over the course of the next number of weeks. I want to look at the theme of broken walls. I don't know if you've been watching TV recently, but uh, there's a lot of broken walls out there. Um, when we watch the devastation of what was going on uh, with the riots and the broken and breaking of, of stuff that's going on, um, this theme of broken walls I think is pretty appropriate. I want to take you to a man who knew how to fix broken walls. There was a guy by the name of Nehemiah. You find his story in the Old Testament. I'm going to read some of it to you just now, particularly chapter 1 for now. And it's a great story, and it's amazing how in the Bible the, the stories are able to change your lives. You know, it's a true fact. You can either wait for Vesuvius to erupt in your life and devastate you because you didn't listen to the story. You can just listen to the story and allow the story and the principles and the parallels and the, and the pictures that we find in these stories to change the people that we are. And the Bible is the uniquest book in the world to be able to do that. This theme of broken walls is not one that's just physical. We all know that. We live in a world where there's broken walls relationally. Where there's broken walls in marriages, in the nation, in personal people breaking their walls of their lives. We see broken walls in churches today. We see broken walls in different ministries and in marriages and, and in spiritual lives where the walls of our lives just come tumbling down in, in so many different different places. So the principles that we're seeing in the book of Nehemiah can be applied in so many different aspects of our lives. So I really hope that you'll take these aspects, these principles, and apply them in maybe three or four different contexts of your life. But if ever there was an opportunity for the church to rise up, it's now. And if ever there was a chance for the church to take ownership and responsibility for the... They didn't break the walls, but for us to take responsibility to get this country back on its feet by, by getting out there, being the hands and feet of Jesus, to, to rebuild the walls of this beautiful nation of ours. And at the same time, maybe rebuild our lives as we apply these principles. The book of Nehemiah it was written, was actually took place about 400 odd years before the birth of, of Christ. At a time when the, the nation of Israel were, was in exile. Half of them had come back under the previous king. And under Ezra, they had rebuilt the temple. So there was at least worship taking place back in Jerusalem. The temple had been rebuilt. But incredibly, they'd left the walls down, and the people had become disinterested, they'd become demoralized, they'd become demotivated, and so their place of worship was now very vulnerable to the enemy to come in and wipe it out again. Now in Nehemiah, we have a beautiful story of this wonderful man who was still in exile. He was in Persia, he was the cupbearer to the king. That's quite an important guy. He had influence. The king would talk with him. He was like the king's bodyguard. And he would, he would have a relationship with the king that probably nobody else had. And so here we have this foreigner, this Jewish man, living in a foreign nation under a foreign king. And he meets his brother. His brother's name is Hanani. And his brother comes and he says to Hanani, Hanani, so how are things going in Jerusalem? How's the nation of Israel doing? And Hanani breaks the bad news to him. Say, oh, Nehemiah, you don't want to know about that. The rebuilding of the temple has kind of taken place. But man, the people are demoralized, they're disinterested, and they're in a bad way back in Jerusalem. And the walls of the city 
are still lying down flat as anything. Nehemiah's heart breaks for the dilemma of Jerusalem. Interesting, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. He knew about it, his ancestors came from there, but he'd never even seen Jerusalem at all. He lived his entire life in Persia. And now he hears about his home place. He hears about what's taken place in Jerusalem. And under the burden of God, because that's what mission is all about, is getting under the burden of God and helping him to carry his burden for him, Nehemiah's heart breaks. He weeps for many days. He prays a beautiful prayer that I want to read to you in a moment. And then he approaches the king, and in a conversation with the king, the king says to him, Nehemiah, I can see that you are down. What's wrong? And Nehemiah says to the king, Oh, king, you probably wouldn't understand this, but my people back in Jerusalem, their lives are in tatters. The walls of the city are down. And the king says to Nehemiah, completely out of character and out of context, he says to Nehemiah, So what do you want to do about it? And Nehemiah says, Hey, king, I'm looking for that opportunity. I would like for you to write me a letter. I'd like for you to give me this stuff. Let me have a leave of absence to go back to Jerusalem and help those people to rebuild the walls. And the king probably smiled and said, Nehemiah, do as you need. Here's your letter. Here's the stuff you need. Here's the soldiers you need to protect you because there's going to be sources along the way. You're going to need all the protection you can get. And he leaves to go back to Jerusalem. When he gets back to Jerusalem, he sits and, and then he gets up and he inspects the walls. And indeed, they're all down. They're all lying. Brick upon brick is broken upon broken. And he looks there and he says, man, do I have to rebuild these walls? This is going to be one heck of a job. But he undertakes the job. First thing he does is he calls all the people and he, he lays some guilt on them. Now, I've always told you that guilt is a lousy motivator for change because guilt changes as we get on. You would lead, guilt can lead to shame and that's a lousy place. But Nehemiah is very specific and he says to them, this is a disgrace that we, the nation of God, the people of God are allowed this situation to take place. We need to get active. We need to do something. And he does this amazing speech to the people and says, let's rebuild the walls together. And the people, most of the people said, we're in. Well, as they began to build, we read in the story, our opposition came. Whenever you try and build for the kingdom of God, there's always going to be opposition. Satan would not be doing his job unless there was opposition to the building of the kingdom of God. And so we have three characters, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, who rise up and they try, and we'll talk about it at another time, try to manipulate Nehemiah to stop him from building the walls. They get violent at first, and they try to stop them. And, but Nehemiah has a plan. He puts half of them building and half of them protecting. He gives responsibility to different families, that they will be responsible for different areas. He has a great plan, a great plan. But great plans with men are not good unless they have being blessed of God. And there's no substitute for the blessing of God because in 52 days, those walls were built. People, let me tell you, that's supernatural. We wouldn't be able to do that now. Even with all the sophisticated equipment we have, we would never have been able to pull it off. But the substitute for the blessing of God is never going to be enough to fulfill what God has called us to. That's the first half of the story. In 52 days, the walls were rebuilt, and Nehemiah returned to Artaxerxes, the king. Sometimes later, in the second half of the story, Nehemiah hears again that the, the walls are, are in jeopardy, and it's looking bad, the, the spiritual reforms that he had instituted didn't take, 
And so he returns to Jerusalem, a very unhappy man. He returned there, he reinstituted the reforms, and a great revival broke out amongst the people. And we read how, man, that's a picture of what we want for South Africa, is it not? We want to see revival that comes from spiritual reform in the church, because the church is God's agent for change. But the people, listen carefully, the church is not what's taking place just in here. The church is needed out there. It's pointless us sitting in a nice building and keeping cozy and warm when the walls of our country are lying in ruin and the walls of the lives of the people that we're meant to love and minister to are in exactly the same position. So that's basically the story, and we're going to work our way through this, and I hope that this is going to be a beneficiary. I'm excited about where we're going. I want to talk about three things tonight. First of all, I'd like to talk about the problem. Let's take a step back in the whole story and say what happened that caused these walls to come down. Because if we don't address that issue, we're not going to know how to sustain them once they've been rebuilt. Now, I reckon that there were three reasons that the walls came down in the first place. It would have been one of these three reasons you'll pick up as I go through. The first reason for broken walls, not just in Jerusalem, but in our lives as well, is found because we neglect the walls. Nobody backslides overnight. You do know that. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to backslide right now. So I don't be, I'm, backsliding takes place over a period of time as we neglect the laws of God, as we neglect the worship with God's people, as we neglect the priorities of reading Scripture and praying and getting to know God better. And as those things get smaller, the cracks get bigger. And it's not long before the cracks begin to take shape because we've neglected the wall and all it needs is a slight tremor and the walls are going to come down because of neglect. Now, it creeps up on you. I just think of the people that we're talking about here. You know, 400 years in Babylon can make you lose your faith as a Jewish person. They've been there for a good period of time. They walk like Jesus. Like Babylonians, talk like Babylonians, they went on like Babylonians. And it didn't happen overnight. It was over a period of time that the beauty of that their faith was slowly chipped away until there was nothing recognizable to the Jewish people anymore. They had lost it completely. Now they were back and they had to rekindle it. It's interesting that the slow erosion of values, the slow erosion of vision for God is what causes us to move backwards into a backslidden position. great example of that would have to be Solomon. Here was Solomon, people. He was blessed of God, man. And God gave him incredible wisdom because he answered the question correctly. He asked for wisdom. And God gave him wisdom and everything else. And if anybody should not have backslidden, it should have been Solomon. He had all the wisdom in the world. And what happened to him? A slow chipping away of his values. His wives and his concubines began to bring foreign gods into the house, and he turned a blind eye to them. A slow erosion of the things of God began to just slowly move out of his life until there was almost nothing left. You know that saying that says that not many good men finish well? How tragic is it that it is true? Solomon should have finished so well, but he only just snuck in by the skin of his teeth. If you go and read the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll see Solomon's journey of degradation. And then at the last minute, he finds out in the last half of the last chapter, he finds out, man, I've done it all wrong. I have neglected the ways of God. 
I've let God drift out of my life. And now I'm just about, I'm just about under for the count of ten. And Solomon returns, we believe, to God. That's the first thing. The first reason the walls could possibly have come down, certainly in our lives, spiritually, relationally, is simply because of neglect. The second reason that the walls of our lives could come down is because we leave the gates of the city open. Now, we've got all these great walls, but as a wall is only as strong as its weakest area, and that's generally the gates. When I was a kid, I used to love the story of the Trojan horse. Another story. It's a great story. And uh, it's a story about a, this Im- almost impregnable city. And the people would look outside and they'd see the enemy there and they would laugh at them. Saying, you'll never get into our city. And then one day the enemy out there got clever. They didn't get stronger, they just got cleverer. And they built this Trojan horse. And you know the story, they hid the army inside. And then the people looked out over the wall and they saw this big monstrosity of this, this wooden horse. And I thought, that's intriguing. I wonder what that is. And then the second day they looked at the third day, fourth day, until they became used to it and they thought, I wonder what's, what's in, maybe there's something inside there. Maybe we need to move that thing inside the city. And they opened the gates to the enemy. They just opened the gates. And they pulled the Trojan horse inside and within seconds the doors were down, the army was out, and they had lost the war, not from without, but from within. Now that is true in history. You know, they talk about these superpowers who have ruled the world over the course of time. And there is a number to how many there are. I can't remember what it is. But these superpowers rule the nation. And generally, they crumble and they fall, not because a bigger enemy has come from without and beaten them up. No, not at all. They crumble from within. The Roman nation is a typical example of that. They, were, they ruled half the known world when they were at their height. And then they slowly began to die. Not because there was a bigger enemy or somebody came in with a stronger army. They died because of inner corruption. They died because of bad leadership. They died because of a wrong value system. And they died from within. Some people die because they explode. But people like this die because they implode. They die from within. And so when we look at this, we see uh, the problem here is probably the greatest problem is that of compromise. Solomon did. Samson did that. They just compromise. It looks so legitimate. It looks so okay to compromise. But I've got to tell you, you can have the greatest looking thing, but if it's built on the feet of compromise, it's only a matter of time. Remember the story in the book of Daniel of of Nebuchadnezzar, the the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And he had this dream of, of a statue and the statue had a head of gold and shoulders of silver and a chest of bronze and, and legs and of iron. And then, oh boy, there was a problem because the feet were made of iron and clay. Now you can't mix iron and clay and expect to stand for too long. And then out of the mountaintop he saw this, this rock being hewn. And in his vision he saw the rock flying towards the statue. didn't hit him on his head. didn't hit him on the bronze or the silver. That's too strong. It hit him on the feet. And as the stone hit the feet of the, of the statue that was a picture of Nebuchadnezzar himself, the whole statue fell because it was built on the feet of compromise. People compromise with the world, compromise with the values of God, and it's only a matter of time before you too, Satan knows exactly where to hit you. It's kind of like, if I put it like this, 
kind of like an iceberg. You know, our personalities or our characters are like, uh, are like an iceberg. An iceberg, you do know, is 20% above water and 80% below the water line. And yet you can only see the top 20% and you are fooled to think that's all there is to the iceberg. But that's typical of us. We are 20% visible to people around us, but you don't know what's going on in my heart. You haven't a clue what's going on below the waterline of my life. You haven't a clue what morals and ethics and stuff that I hold high and valuable, because I can fake it, baby. I can really fake it. And I can make myself look a lot better than I really am until the storm comes. And then all of a sudden, like a yacht, you know, a yacht is 20% above waterline. And you look at a yacht flying out in the ocean as we see them down here in Sheffield, and we see these beautiful yachts out there. We think, man, that's impressive. And that thing can stand against the storm. And yet the reason it stands against the storm is simply because it's got a thing called a keel, which is down below the waterline. And again, 80% of the weight of that yacht, you can't see it. But you only know it's there when there's a storm. Take the keel away and that, doop, that little yacht is going to sink like anything. But have a look through the, 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 the issues of life. Have a look at the people around and you see the shores of life being littered with shipwreck of life one, life two, life 500, simply because there was no weight below the waterline. The waterline, people, is where your character lives. The waterline is where your values hang out. The waterline is where your morals and your ethics hang out. You can't see them, and you don't know how valuable they are until you hit a storm. And it's the weight below the waterline, like an iceberg, 80% below the waterline is where the weight needs to be. So we can impress each other from the top. And we can look really impressive, if you want to, from the top 20%. But don't be fooled. When the storm comes, what's below the waterline is all that counts. Chip away at that. Don't give attention to that. Don't build on that. And it's only a matter of time. The third thing, and this is probably more applicable in the context of the Jewish people at the time, the third thing that brings down the walls is war. You know, an enemy out there outside of your control, bombards across you, brrr, they blow over you, and they whack the walls and they all come down because they're much bigger and much stronger than you. This is where accidents happen in our lives. Tragedies take place. Trauma happens. We get sick. We get dreaded diseases. Coronavirus hits us. You know, tragedies of, of things that are going on around affect us, and they are outside of our control. You can't control the economy. Anybody here want to pull that off? You can't do that. And when the economy crashes, so too do we, because it's much bigger than us economically. Adam and Eve sinned. We pick up the tab for their sin. You know that? We have a look at David. When David sinned, in that last sin where he counted the troops, and God said, David, this is an awful travesty of what you have done here, because you have counted the troops and you've never done that. You've always trusted me to win the battle for you. And David lost 70,000 people because of the sin of one man. That's crazy. Those people didn't sin. David sinned. Their lives fell apart. They lost loved ones because of the sin of one man. Those poor people. We don't think much about them because we make too much of a hero of, of David. But because of him, many people's lives. But war happens and war comes and knocks the walls of our lives down, we have no control over it. So those are the three things of the problem. The problem of broken walls is simply because of neglect, 
We leave the gate open. We leave our minds open. That's why the Bible says take captive every thought. That's a military term. You do know that. It says take captive every thought that comes into your mind. Have a look at it and say, is this thought going to be useful for me? Is this thought going to help build me up or break me down? If it's going to build me up, bring it in. If it's not, reject it. Take captive every thought. Close the door on the thoughts that should not be coming. And then lastly, it's war that breaks the walls down. Let's move on. I want to talk about another P. We've spoken about the problem. I want to talk about the passion. I love this. Nehemiah is an epitome of somebody who was passionate in what he held to and what he believed in. It says there that Nehemiah heard what Hanani had to say. And it uses the word he heard. Some of us listen, but we don't hear. He didn't just listen to Hanani go on about the story. He listened and he took that listening and he internalized what he had listened to. And he heard the heartbeat of a broken nation. He heard the heartbeat of a, of a person, Hanani, who portrayed to him everything that was of value to him back in Jerusalem was now broken and the walls were down and it broke his own heart. You know, it's incredible. You know, I've been watching TV uh, a little bit and I've been watching the news. And I don't know if you've been watching what's been going on in Afghanistan. Yes. I can't watch that without crying. When I see those little children, you know, that's war. The walls of their lives have come down because of an enemy outside of their control has beaten the heck out of them. And here they are traveling miles, lost their parents. There was a man on TV being interviewed last night who had lost his wife and his daughter, couldn't find them, presumed them to be killed. And here he was holding on to his son. He said, my son is all I have. Don't take him from me. And I'm thinking, do I have to watch this? Maybe I should just change to the cooking channel, you know. Cooking channel's cool. You know, I'm going to learn how to make lasagna on the cooking channel. You know, and yet, you know, but as I watch this, I'm thinking, God, that's awful. That is absolutely terrible to see the fear on these little kids' faces as they, they face the unknown and the danger of what they are going through. And I have to say, what response am I going to give? Well, there's four responses. I can, on the one hand, I can feel very sad for them. Now it begins there, maybe. Like if you're really sad that they are in that situation. And I can cry for them. And I can tell you stories that will make you cry and make you feel very sad if you work in some of the places that we work here. We, I can make you cry. I can make you feel very sad. But that's not going to sustain the battle. You know that. Or I can make you feel bad. You know, sad and bad. They kind of go together. You know, I can make you feel bad. Look how you live and look at the nice car you have and the nice house you live in. And, and you should feel bad because of the people across the way here who are living in such degradation, you should feel bad. You know? And I can lay that on you too. I'm quite good at that. Or else I can make you feel glad. You know, glad, Dish, I'm so glad that I don't have to suffer like that. Just change the channel. I'm so glad that I don't have to go through what they have to go through. I'm so glad that the walls of my life have not broken down like they have theirs. And we change the channel again. So it's about being sad, bad, and glad. But that's never going to sustain you in the ministry of the mission of changing this world. Sad, bad, and glad don't cut it. Let me tell you what cuts it. Mad. Mad. Anger is a great sustainer of energy. When we really get angry with the situation around us, that will energize you, not just one day, but you get up the next day and you're still angry. Get up the next day and you're still angry. We're angry with injustice. 
I can't handle injustice. I'm not, I'm not sad, bad, or glad about that. I am mad about injustice. And that's why we seek to do so much through Genesis, because of the injustice that we see around us. And injustice is simply an abuse of power. And I've always hated that. I don't know how many fights I had at school when I used to stand up for the underdog. And I used to get the heck beaten out of me because I couldn't stand the bullies. And that they would bully the little kids. That I, and I just, something inside of me just said, this is not right. This is not good. That because you're bigger, you can bully somebody who's smaller than you. I couldn't cope with that. It used to get me, and it still does, really mad when we see the injustice that is around us. I mean, I'm consoled with this because we all think that anger is a bad thing. Well, I think certain anger is. I think we get angry at the wrong stuff. We get angry because we have to stand too long in the home affairs department. You know, we get angry because we, somebody cuts me off in traffic and I get really angry about that, you know. Oh, man, we get angry about the wrong stuff. Let's get angry about the stuff that really we need to be angry about. I'm consoled that Jesus got angry. I love the fact that Jesus threw the guys out the temple. He got a whip. You know, gave them a hiding, eh? You know, Jesus was really angry about the injustice of them ripping off the poor people. And I get that. I wish we could get it more. I wish the church could really get angry with the stuff that we see. But we're too busy sitting inside. I wasn't going to say praying prayers and singing songs, but I like to pray prayers and sing songs. I think we need to do that. But we've got to get angry as well. Otherwise, we waste our prayers and our singing and our sermons if all we do is sit and watch. You know that in the Lord's Prayer, we say, Thy will be done. And the reason we have to say that is because God's will is not being done. The reason we have to pray, Thy will be done, is because then we pray, Thy kingdom come. Because God's kingdom is not in operation as it should be in the world. And the mandate that God has given to us is to change the world, is to save the world. And to, and to be agents of change, we are mission people. Like God has always had a mission agent in the world. He chose the nation of Israel. Why? Did he just like them? No. God chose the nation of Israel because he wanted a redemptive people. He wanted people who could go out there and be mission agents in the world. Not sit and just sing songs and pray prayers. As good as those are, I take nothing from them. But God needed a redemptive. That's what the church is today. We are God's redemptive agent to the world around us. That's a huge responsibility. We pray, thy will be done. I remember when we did a study of this, we said, thy will be done can be said. Your tone of voice says everything. I think I call it intonation, where the tone of voice determines the meaning of what you've said. I can say to you, okay, God, thy will be done. You know, it's kind of like passive resignation. Okay, you bigger than me. Thy will be done. Or I could say, okay, thy will be done. You know, passive aggressive. You know, who do I think I am? Thy will be done. You know, and I'm sort of shaking my fist at God. Or I could, I could say, the right way is to say it with sort of a positive affirmation. Say, okay, God, I didn't quite understand it. But you know, it's really cool that your will be done. That's a good one. But here's an even better one. I think we should say thy will be done as an act of active rebellion. To say, thy will is not being done in the world. We want your will, God, to be done. And your will is not being done. And you've given me a mandate to get your will to be done. And your kingdom has come on earth. And nobody's going to do that passively. We're going to get angry. And we're going to do it almost like an act of a rebellion to the kingdom of darkness around us. God's will has got to be done, people. 
his kingdom has got to come. Now I want to get to the punchline of what I talk to you about. I love the prayer. We've spoken about the problem. We've spoken about the passion. I want to talk to you about the prayer. In the book here, you read from verse 5. Nehemiah, he says, I heard these things. He heard. He didn't just listen to these things. Verse 4. I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, this is his prayer. It's awesome. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before your day, before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sin we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. That's intriguing. What a great prayer. Do you know, people, if you go to Bible college, they study this prayer. It's one of the proclaimed more sort of perfect theological prayers because it incorporates everything. You see in this prayer, this great uh, awesomeness of God is declared. There's great worship in this prayer. Every prayer needs to have worship. There's great praise in this prayer. We need to all be praising God. There's thanksgiving in this prayer. There's incredible repentance. This guy, Nehemiah, is repenting for sins he didn't even commit. They committed the sin, but he's owning it. He's repenting with them. There's, there's requests that he, God, that he asked God to do. And there's a depth of commitment in this prayer that is absolutely beautiful. It has all the ingredients of a great prayer, theologically. It's technically wonderful. And Bible college students have studied it wonderfully. But I think the greatest thing about this prayer it's not its technical correctness or its, uh, or its uh, you know, great wording, but it's the passion of the prayer. It's not the prayer that impresses God. It's the passion of the prayer that really gets to God. You know, in Luke 18, you have the two prayers being prayed. The one is by the tax collector and the other one is by the Pharisee. The Pharisee prays a great prayer. Man, he's... he's, he's He's, he's hitting the theological buttons all over the place about tithing and about fasting and all those things. And, and, and yet God says he's not impressed with his prayer. And there's a little tax collector who can't even raise his eyes to heaven. And he beat upon his chest and said, Oh God, have mercy upon me. I am a sinner. And Jesus said, Who left justified that day? The Pharisee? He had a wonderful theological prayer. We could study that prayer. Or the, or the, or the, the tax collector who... Prayed with passion, simplicity, but he prayed from his his heart. Now, if you look in scripture, you see many passionate prayers. 
Have a look at Hannah. Hannah's desperate for a child. She says, oh God, give me a child. That's a simple prayer. Not much theology in that thing. You know, have a look at Peter walking on the water. He has one word, help. <laughs> There's no theology in that thing. He's thinking, and he's not saying, well, Lord, you know, can I, you know you're awesome, and, and you're great, and you made the sea and the waves and the lightning. And we really, you know, if you, you know, he didn't talk about that. He says, Lord, just help me. Help me. And then there's the thief on the cross who just simply prays, Lord, remember me. Just remember me. That oak had never any opportunity to learn any theology. Never been to Sunday school. Never been to Bible college. But he just knew who Jesus was. He said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, will you just, man, if you don't mind, will you just remember me? Great passion from his heart. It's the passion of the heart that gets God's attention, not the theological correctness of your prayer. So, in the last verse, and this is my last little thing here, I love this. He says this, Grant me favor in the presence of this man. And I'm saying that man is the king. And then he qualifies it. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. You know what he's saying there, people? He's saying, don't look to the king to answer your prayer. Don't look to the king. He, he's just the king. I'm just his cupbearer. He's just a man. Don't look to a political system to rebuild the walls. Don't look to another person. You don't, no matter how great they are, to be able to rebuild the walls of what you church is meant to be doing. We have to believe that we are the ones that need to look to a man. Don't look to a governmental system. Do not look to a human leader. They will never, ever cut it. We look to God because they're just men, even if they are kings. They are just men. So I close with this last little thought. We're all sitting there thinking, look at the broken walls around us. You know, what's that got to do with me? I don't break the walls. I, 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 it's not my fault that the walls have come down. I didn't go and break down all those things. And we're very quick to find somebody else to, to blame for the broken walls. As much as that might be legitimate, it's certainly not helpful. We need to own this thing. I may not be to blame, but you know what, people? The responsibility to rebuild stuff we didn't break is ours. It's ours. It's the churches. It's the churches. Have a look, Esther. There's a nation of Israel just about to be wiped out, and she steps across the line to save the nation. She says, I will take responsibility for sins I've not committed, for people that I don't even know. I will own responsibility. There's Moses. The burning bush saying, I'm not responsible for the, the, the people of Israel. I'm not responsible when God called him and said, I want you to go and deliver Israel from the Egyptians. He would have said, but I'm not responsible. It's got nothing to do with me. And, and yet he took responsibility for stuff that he was not to blame for. People, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed at all. The emphasis is on us. Emphasis on us. To take responsibility to recognize maybe the problem as to why the walls have come down, you know, to, to have a look at the, the reason that those things have come down, to have our own hearts broken by the things that break the heart of God. I love that song that speaks about that. It's awesome, you know. That song is just so beautiful. Break my heart for the things that break yours. Out of a broken heart, we will not just get mad, glad, or sad. We'll get mad. We're going to get mad with the injustices of the world around us that will force us out of our comfort zone to do the things that the church needs to be doing 
And then quite obviously, if my people who are humble will pray and seek my face, then I'll hear them. And let's pray, not because of theological profoundness or theological correctness, but let's pray out of a heart of passion. Let's pray right now. Father, thank you for this amazing man. Thank you for the call on his life to rebuild broken walls. Walls that he did not break, but he owned it. He took responsibility. He says, that's my job, to lead the people to a place of wellness, to rebuild the walls, to surround the place of worship, to protect the people that God loves. I don't particularly love them very much, but God loves them. Therefore, I will do everything I can to protect them and to keep them and to build into their lives. Lord, I pray that as we look into these aspects of Nehemiah, I'm so excited to share some more principles again as the rebuilding of the walls around us. Lord, if there are people whose lives maybe need some attention, because that's where it begins. The point is trying to rebuild the walls of the nation when the walls of our own lives are lying in ruin. Oh, Lord, help us to apply these principles that we've learned about physical walls into our spiritual lives, our relational lives, our marriage lives, our friendship lives, our business lives, pretty much everything. And if there's some rebuilding we need to do, we pray we do it now. And you would help us. Because it's a supernatural act of God that we need. Pray we'd understand these truths and apply them in Jesus' name. Amen.